How's everybody doing this morning? Good, sweet. Um, Mike and Deb send their love. Um, they, they are the guys who lead Oceanside Church. They are a visionary eldership couple. They're away right now in South Africa, uh, visiting with some family, but also ministering in churches around them. And we hope to see them back soon. Please pray for them in all the ministry and the family stuff that they're doing. Uh, we miss them dearly, uh, but they're doing well. Um, I don't know about you. Who was here last week with us? Sweet, a few of you. Most of you, hopefully. Hopefully there were some more hands there. Um, But Bruce, if you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to go and listen to the message. We had a guy from New Zealand come from the Village Church, not Vancouver Village Church, New Zealand Village Church, fly all the way to be with us last week. Me and Camilla got to host them in our homes and just had an amazing time connecting with these guys from a relating church that feels really, you know, at a really similar stage to Oceanside, also in a similar nation to Canada. And Bruce brought like a really important message for us last week. And uh, who can remember the title of that message? Let's do some connect group quizzing. My connect group guys over here, do you remember? Oh, dear. Um, but the gist of it, you probably didn't, he didn't mention the title during his preach, but the gist of it was Church, We Need to Wake Up. And the title of his preach was, Are We Awake? And this was a really powerful message for me. It's something how God has spoken to me in sort of my 20s and now into my 30s of, Are You Awake, Andy? Are you asleep or are you awake? And we had a really great connect group this week. Hopefully the other connect groups uh, in town had a great week as well. And I think we had a great week because that question, that provocation, that, that thing of are you awake is, is a really connection to us and where we are in, in the first world. It's easy to be sleepy. And I know through my Christian journey from God sending me out to do something adventurous in my, in my late teens and then sort of living uh, through the effects of that and what God has put in me, I know I've gone through seasons of where I felt really sleepy and where God showed me something new and I've suddenly felt really awake again and where I've maybe drifted off again back to sleep. Who felt impacted by last week's message? Yeah, sweet guys. So if you, didn't, if you didn't hear it, listen to it because we're building off it all the time. God is, is weaving a theme throughout the preaching here at Oceanside and it was a really good message. This week, we're going to go back to our Visions and Values series, which we've been preaching starting in sort of mid-September, and it's going to take us through possibly into the, into the new year as we make way for Christmas and everything like that to do preaching around that. And this week, we're going to be talking about the last thing that's on our Vision and Values, and which, is, which has the heading, Winning Souls for Discipleship. If you can stick that up there, Charles, that would be great. And let's just read through it. Let's see what our Vision and Values says about that. Uh, winning Souls for Discipleship, that first the vision and value piece there. So I'll start to re- read it out. And you can find this on our website, all of it. So we aim to evangelize, care for, and grow individuals in Christ as we reach into our community and the nations with the gospel and the dynamic of practical ministry, thereby fulfilling the Great Commission, which we find at the end of Matthew, Evangelizing, evangelism is a responsibility for every believer, not just an occasion or an event. And if you've been with us at Oceanside, you can just leave that up there for a minute. Um, if you've been with us at Oceanside, I think in the last six months, definitely, but probably going on for a full year now, that has been our focus through all of our preaching. Mike and Debs, as they've been leading the eldership team and as they've been encouraging other teams at Oceanside, they've been encouraging us to be outward focused, encouraging us to say it's not 
Sure, what matters in these four walls on a Sunday morning really matters, but what's more important is the people who aren't here who are outside of these walls, and that's true, amen? And you would have picked up to that. So today is the day where I guess is the summation of some of that, and it's the day where we say we are called to make disciples. Winning souls for discipleship is a key value at Oceanside. And we get this value from Matthew 28. We'll begin it in verse 18. And this is something that we mention all the time. You'll probably know it really well if you've been around for a while. And it's this. It's Jesus' final, some of his final words to his disciples before he leaves them and he sends them out. And it says, And Jesus came and he said to them, his disciples, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you till the end of the age. If you know your, if you've ever spoken to someone who's perhaps in their final moments, perhaps they're getting old, perhaps they're in the hospital, you know, it's that final moments, that final words that they get to share with somebody else, you really listen to that. And these were Jesus' departing words to us, to his disciples, and includes us now as we enter into that. It was his final words to us, and so we value these. I mean, everything that Jesus said was amazing and important, but this we value, and the disciples would have been keenly listening at this point to know, you know, what is Jesus' final focus as as he leaves us. And so... This is a big focus for us. And who knows that the, the, the sort of the Christian Christianity throughout history has been all about this. It's been all about making disciples. Christians around the world, if you include different denominations and beliefs, we're some, there's two billion some people that would call themselves Christians today around the world. It's a massive chunk of the population. And we're not going to stop until we see every tribe and every tongue come to a knowledge of, of Jesus. So what we're talking about is inviting, the value that we're talking about today is inviting people into that discipleship walk with Jesus, inviting people to become disciples, to become Christians. And often where we go, if you've, I know when I grew up uh, back home that every summer we went to Bible camp and maybe there was an Easter camp as well, and we go and we just, you know, there's, there's big altar calls, there's big things like that. And a common thing you'll hear at that, at that point is the, the sinner's prayer. Who's, who... Um, went through the sinner's prayer or a sinner's prayer when they became a Christian? Not, not myself. I actually don't remember reciting the sinner's prayer. I believe you know, God was working in me. I believe I became a Christian when I was four years old. No one led me through anything at that particular point. I remember meeting and, and um, meeting the presence of God. But Billy Graham, an amazing evangelist, probably one of the most amazing evangelists that we've seen in the last century, this was his sinner's prayer that you might be familiar with. It says, Dear Lord Jesus... I know that I'm a sinner and I ask you for forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Saviour. In your name, amen. That's a familiar thing for us. And the reason why that uh, sinner's prayer exists, some people believe it came around in the 12th century, some people think the 18th, but really it's this mechanism because when people hear the gospel, they want to know how to respond. How do I respond to this? How do I get eternal life? And the sinner's prayer sums up 
most of what we need. It sums up that we need to acknowledge that we're sinners. We need to ask forgiveness from Jesus Christ himself and only Jesus Christ. It's all because Jesus died and rose again. And it's all about us now turning in that power of the new resurrection away from sin and inviting Jesus to be present and powerful in our lives. And then at the end, what I love about Billy Graham's is is that it says, I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your name, amen. I'm not knocking the sinner's prayer. Different people think different things just because it's not explicitly found in the Bible anywhere. It's more of a compilation of what we see as stepping into that. And it's a great start for as we invite people into be disciples. But as I prepared this week and I thought about, you know, we've been talking about evangelism, we've been talking about reaching out for actually quite a while here at Oceanside, there was a word in the Great Commission that I felt key to highlight this morning. We know that we're called to send out. If you're part of Oceanside Church, you know that we're telling you guys to reach the lost, to reach your family, friends, co-workers. And what I wanted to look at today was actually the word disciple. In In Matthew 20, it says, make disciples. And so for us today, I think it's important because I don't think we can make disciples, that we can go introduce people and and bring people along on a discipleship journey unless we know what a disciple is. Again, we define ourselves as Christians most of the times. It's not a very familiar word that we would define ourselves as disciples of Jesus. If you meet people in the workplace, they're like, what are you doing on Sunday? Oh, I go to church because I'm a Christian. We don't, most of the time we don't say, we go to church because I'm a disciple. That would be weird. It doesn't mean a lot in our, in our context here. So let's look at a bit of the context from the first century. The first thing that I want to highlight for us here is that when most people think of disciple, uh, the word disciple, they think of another word, discipleship. And especially in church leadership, we get asked questions like, who are you discipling? How many people are you discipling, Wes? How many people did you meet with this week and encourage one-on-one as you met with them? Or who's discipling you? Or sometimes people leave a church because they're like, no one discipled me at that church. And what they mean by that is one of the leaders, one of the key leaders at church didn't spend time with me, maybe a year, maybe two years, meeting one-on-one with me to encourage me in my faith. I left that church because no one took the time to disciple me. But the issue with that is the vast majority of the word, of, of the, the word when it comes up in the New Testament, when it comes up in the, the gospel, discipleship wasn't used as a, disciple wasn't used as a verb. It's actually a noun. It's actually identification of who we are. It's not something that's done to us by somebody else or something we do to somebody else. It's not this thing of I'm going to make you, Jesus says make disciples, but it's not all the time a reference in the New Testament as I'm going to make someone disciples. Discipleship is what we identify as, as believers in Christ. It's actually a noun. It's mentioned 268 times, and two times in the Gospel and Acts, it's got a verb in front of it. Here in in Matthew 28, it says, make disciples. Later in Acts, it says, they made disciples. But everywhere else, it's identifying the people of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, as disciples. And disciples, being a disciple was a word that the people in Jesus' time, especially the Jewish nation, would have been very familiar with. Why is that? So the, 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 the best education that you can get in, um, in modern day world is what? It's a PhD. How long does a PhD take? No, too long. I, I left school at 19. I had plans to go back. I met Camilla. Jesus saved me from that education. And now I stand... Now I'd stand as a distracted man, but hopefully used by God before then. I'm glad, and Camilla's back at school now, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that's not me, and it's her. 
So I never went for a degree. I, I stopped at a stage that many of us stopped at at, um, at stage 19, and then I went out and I, I, I did an internship for the church after that. And after that, I was just sort of, that was my aim and goal. I wanted to do ministry after that. And obviously, we still learn after that. But in Jesus' time, the pinnacle of our education system is the PhD. And there's some amazing people here this morning who hold those PhDs, who've worked very hard for them. But the apex of Jewish society education was what? It was to be a disciple. If you were a disciple in, the, in, the, in that first century context in Jewish culture, you were the PhD student. So let's just summarize what, what an education looked like for the, Jewish, for the Jewish people. Well, it started up until you were 12 years old. There was, there was, a, there was um, a school that everyone did, like a grade school for us, and it was called the house, it translates to the house of the book. The book, if you don't know it, is this. It's the Bible. It was a bit smaller for them. The Torah they were learning was just the first five books of the Bible. And up until they were 12 years old, they were an oral culture. The way they learned, they would have to memorize the first five books of the Bible. So we have that um, Bible school course that's starting soon with Mark Manfredi. Who thinks you're going to be able to memorize all of that when you read it this, this year? Just the first section. That's just the first five books of the Bible. But when, the, when those guys were around, the, every young person would try that, and their goal was to learn to memorize word for word the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis to Deuteronomy. The best of the best, most people after that, when they were 12 years old, you know, they left school and they went to do their father's trade. They went to be a carpenter, they went to be a blacksmith, anything like that. They would just go, if you're a girl, you would serve in the home, maybe you get married soon after that, pretty young. Most people left school at that time and just, just went out into the world to learn their family's trade. But the best of the best were invited to another school that was connected to the synagogue where they would be taught by someone who taught in the synagogue and it was called the house of learning. And they would learn and they would try to learn over the next maybe four or five years of their life the entire Old Testament. So the entire Old Testament is that. If I look at my pages, 1,192 pages in my Bible, a bit different in yours possibly, but that was a huge chunk. They would learn. These were educated people. And after that, they might go off and, again, go to their family's trade. They might have a certain different roles in the, in the temple and different things like that. But the best of the best of the best of the house of learning would become, would become disciples after that. And after that, a rabbi would come and meet the students that have graduated that second level of school, probably around 16 years old, and they would come and they would interview these guys who had learned the entire New Testament. They would quiz them of their knowledge of the Old Testament. They would ask them about different rabbis' teaching and what they know of this, that, and the other. And if the student was dedicated enough, if they were good enough, the rabbi would invite them to what? To follow there's a saying in, uh, for, the, for, those rabbi, for those disciples at the time, it was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which meant like, may you walk behind your rabbi so closely that when you're walking through the desert, may the rabbi's dust kick up onto you as you go about your life. And for us, again, that word disciple, so that's what it means in the early context. It means becoming like a PhD graduate, a PhD student. For us, when we think about disciple, Perhaps a better word that we could translate it to right now is the word apprentice. Who here this morning has done an apprenticeship in their life? Again, not me, I flunked out of school, but there's a few hands. Brian, you did an apprenticeship? What was it? Articles, okay, sweet. Didn't know that, perfect. 
But there's many of us who have apprenticeship is a word that we understand. And an apprentice is someone who is, you know, going into the trades maybe. It's a skill that you've really got to learn from somebody else. It's not just something that you can discover in a book. There obviously is book study if you're a carpenter. You probably have to read and study and do different exams, all of that. But most of a lot of your knowledge is going to come practically by following somebody else around and doing what they did. Same for chefs. If you want to become an amazing chef, you need to go and apprentice under somebody else who you really like the style of. And maybe if you're good enough, if you're a good enough chef, they'll have you in their kitchen. What is it, a sous chef or something like that? That's the thing. I'm not very educated again. Artists, sculptors, all these different trades that take a long time to learn and a big skill base, we talk about apprenticeship. And there's three goals of apprenticeships that are familiar with us, and there's three goals of apprenticeships that are familiar with the first century Jews, and that's why it's a great thing to cross over, that we can learn from. The first thing that an apprentice or a disciple wants to do of whatever they're learning is to spend time with their teacher, as much time as possible. If their teacher's going to do something and do this amazing work, the disciple or the apprentice wants to come along and wants to see that. How close do they want to be to their teacher in that time? They want to be right next to, they want to be looking at every single detail of what their teacher is doing so they can learn the ins and the out, the little nuances of what they need to be a super skilled person into the future. For first century Jews, that meant leaving their families and going and following their rabbi 24-7. We see that Jesus did that with his disciples as well. It was, come, follow me. They slept where Jesus slept. They went where Jesus went. When someone invited Jesus into a house, the disciples often came too as well. And the disciples wanted to pick up everything about what their rabbi or what their teacher was teaching them. The way they dressed, their mannerisms, the way they ate, maybe the way they handled their finances, their different beliefs and what they thought about other things going on in culture. They wanted to be a carbon copy of their teacher. That's a strange idea for us this morning. We, again, we, work, we, we live in an individualistic society where we want to be our own person. Okay, I want to learn from you, but now I'm going to do it in my own flair. But for them, for disciples, in the first century rabbis, they wanted to be the carbon copy of their rabbi, to do everything exactly as their teacher did. And that, so, the second, so the first point is they wanted to be with their teacher. The second point is they wanted to be like their teacher or become like their teacher through being with them. And the third thing that they wanted to do was then they they wanted to do what their teacher did. What's the point of an apprentice if at the end of the apprenticeship, the person doesn't go and do the task at hand that that the teacher has laid out? And so for the people who had had a successful apprenticeship to their rabbi after a few years, the rabbi would, again, have seen the growth in them and would say, you're now ready to go off and become a rabbi yourself and then send them off. Similar to Jesus. Jesus sends us out at the end of those years that he spent with his disciples. So from being a disciple, from being an apprenticeship, from being in an apprenticeship, what can we take from that for us? And how are we learning? How are we learning how we're disciples? And we just translate, we just change the word on those three things. The first thing that we want to do as disciples of Jesus is be with Jesus. Does that sound like a good start? Yeah, we want to be with Jesus. Pretty obvious. The second thing we want to do as disciples of Jesus is to be like Jesus. What's the point of being with him if he doesn't rub off on you or if you don't be like him at the end of it? And the third thing that a disciple wants to do that sometimes we forget about is we want to do the things that Jesus did. 
So again, from learning from the discipleship model, from learning about what Jesus knew and what the disciples knew about what that word and what Jesus was asking in Matthew 28, he wanted us to be with him, he wanted us to be like him, and he wanted us to do all that he did. The first thing, be with Jesus. This is our first and probably our most important goal. This is where the fruit of everything that we're called to comes out of. We know that people, well, we know that in times in our lives that we can get into seasons where we just want to do things for God and we don't want to spend time with Him. What happens when we do that? I know for myself, I feel burnt out. I feel sluggish. I feel like, sure, I know what to do, but without spending time with Jesus, I often burn out. This is where we start as new believers. As we go out and do the Great Commission, as we introduce people to Jesus, is Chuka here this morning? Chuka had an amazing testimony. At, uh, he was going to a doctor's office. Hey, hey, Chuka, I see you. Um, Chuka was going to a, a testimony and he met someone, and he introduced someone to Jesus this week. And it was amazing. The first thing, uh, it was amazing to hear about, but the first thing that we should be encouraging people to do out of meeting, G- out of becoming Christians is to be with Jesus. That's where we all start. And that's the foundation block of what a disciple is to be. And for a disciple in the first century, they knew that they were to spend every waking moment with Jesus. I believe that Jesus points to this in John 15, verse 4 and 5. The language that Jesus used here is to abide in him. So if we turn to John 15, verse 4, it says, Jesus says, is t- telling his disciples, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And Jesus is asking us into a relationship with himself that's as close to a plant being connected into, a, into its vine. So that's, that's a good thing. We, again, we know most of that. We know that Jesus was one with the Father. Jesus actually displays what discipleship is like by his relationship with Jesus. I love reading the New Testament because most of the New Testament is just Jesus running away from people to get alone with the Father and then people catching up to them and then him having compassion on them and then ministering to them. But Jesus was constantly running away to be with his rabbi, which was God. He was constantly running to be with God, to spend time in God's presence. In John 17, later, later down the, that interaction of what we just read, he says, my prayer is not, uh, John 17 verse 20 says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who believe in me through their message that, they also, that all of them may also be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's radical about what Jesus says right there is that he says just as he went to be with the Father and had relationship with the Father while he was on earth and went to be secluded and all of that, Jesus actually wants us to have the same relationship with him and the Father now. And that's a crazy thing. Do we do that? Are we as keen to get away, secluded alone with him, with Jesus, as often as we can? Again, a disciple wanted to spend every waking moment with their rabbi so they could learn everything that he had, that he had got to send them. The next question after that is, well, that's not really possible for us. That's not really possible. Jesus isn't physically present with us here this morning. I think I've said this a couple of years ago, but if it turned out that Jesus was somewhere on the face of the planet and it turned out that he was there, you know, it's not going to be how he comes back. He's going to come back in the second coming. It's going to look very different. But if it turned out that he was somewhere, you know, in Europe, we would all be on a plane tomorrow to try and go see him, 
to try and be with him because to be with his physical presence. If he was somewhere, we would want to go as his disciples. We'd take out credit cards. We'd go into debt just to get to Jesus, just to be with him. Don't do that. It's all around us. But how do we do that? How can we spend every waking moment with Jesus? How can we be disciples like the first century disciples were disciples if he's not physically present with us? Well, the answer to that is found in the same passage. Again, we're going to be in John 14, 15, 16, and 17 today. This is one conversation that he's reading with his disciples. Before you go to connect groups this week, I'd encourage you just to read through that section of Scripture, how Jesus was teaching his disciples, because it's all about his relationship with the Father, our standing before the Father, and how we can have relationship like he did with, with God. In John 14, 15 to 17, it says, again, something we know, but he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So God's going away, but he's going to send somebody else to be with us forever. Even the Spirit of truth. So it's the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you will know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The amazing thing for us today, Christians, as, as, as we're disciples, as we're following God, that actually we have Jesus with us physically present through his, through his Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, through the person of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is calling us into a 24-7 relationship with himself, he's calling us into a 24-7 relationship with his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit reminds us and it guides us. In John 14, 26, it says, But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all the things that I have said to you. Doesn't that sound like discipleship, guys? Doesn't that sound like the the invitation? The Holy Spirit is going to remind us of everything that Jesus has taught. It's going to lead us into all truth. Guys, we're insane if we don't spend time with the Holy Spirit. It would be like Jesus is physically in the next room and we wouldn't go dare open the door to be with him and say, hey Jesus, what's up? God has sent his spirit and his spirit dwells within all those who call upon his name. In John 16, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, again, Jesus has just mentioned this over and over again in his dialogue here with the disciples because it's really important. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Church, the first thing, the first call of a disciple is to be with Jesus. And for what that translates for us today is that we need to be in his presence. That's not a call for the connect group leaders amongst you. And the call for connect group leaders is for you all to be in his presence so when the people come to a connect group that they might know a bit of Jesus. No, it's for all of us. The Holy Spirit is with all of us. From the four-year-old who gives our life to Jesus to the 96-year-old. who who meets Jesus on their deathbed. We all have the Holy Spirit given to us. And guys, we need to, Mike, and it was one of his last messages before he left to South Africa, a couple of them, he said that, guys, we need to carve out time for the Holy Spirit in our day. And that's true. We need to find time to spend with him. Jesus admitted the same thing about himself in John 5, 19 to 20. He said, And Jesus, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, that's Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord. Seems insane to me. 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And that for us is a big statement. Just leave that on the screen there for a moment, Charles. That is what we want to do. We only want to do the will of the Father. The disciple, once we get, once we journey this out, once we live our life, our life is pointed in this direction, that we do what we see the Father doing. Jesus saw what the Father was doing through, the, through God's Spirit, but also by spending time with God. He had to spend time with God to see what he was doing. He had to listen to God to see what he was doing, even though he was God himself as well. One of the verses that's always stood out to me as this like insane challenge and different parts of my life I've lived it out in different, in different things is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 to 18, where it calls us to pray without ceasing. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, in 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Jesus, of God in Jesus Christ in you. And that's an amazing challenge. How can we pray without ceasing? I don't believe it's there to say pray without ceasing because it's something that's impossible for us. I believe we can get into this mode, into this relationship with Jesus where we feel him physically throughout every part of our day. Um, When me and Camilla were dating um, and when we were engaged, she came to live in England and and we worked at different coffee shops down the road. And it was just, I love working in a coffee shop, Um, used to make coffees, Was spent a a couple years there before we were married just um, working minimum wage job. But one of the great things I loved about that, it was like you're constantly interacting with people and you're constantly just doing something kind of monotonous that you can just, you can just bang out, you can just do as a skill. You're like, once you've learned how to make it, you don't have to think about it much. And one of the, this verse, this, this piece of the Bible of pain without ceasing really stood out to me at that time. And actually, I went through a journey with God of saying, God, can I pray without ceasing in my work at Costa Coffee? Can I, is that possible for me? And guys, I tell you, It's possible. It's possible to spend every waking moment of your day in the presence of God. It's possible to carry out your job. It's possible to have difficult times, hard times, if we just set ourselves in the mode. One of the other great things I loved about that coffee shop is it was a half an hour walk away from my house. And every every day, it was half an hour there, half an hour back. That was my time with God. That was my time praying into my day, setting up my day. God, give me people to talk to. Let me pray over people just quietly um, as they come through and ask for coffee. Let me be a blessing to my coworkers. And really, it was a pinnacle of this outworking of that in my life. I think in the, the busyness of life now with kids and all this stuff, it's easy to get distracted. But God's speaking to me to say, say, hey, Andy, can you be... Can you pray without ceasing today, even in the craziness of it all? And I believe the answer is yes, if we make time to initiate relationship with Jesus. Bruce said, uh, we all remember different things from what Bruce said last week, but one of the quotes that stood out to me, he said this, you really don't know what your day is going to bring. It's going to be full of surprises, however you live your day. You might have your own schedule and all sorts of things planned, but there, is a divine, but there are divine appointments waiting for you at every point of the day if you are alert to it. So there's divine appointments at every part of your day if you are alert to it. It's exciting if you're looking for it, but we've got to get out of bed on purpose in the morning, dressed in him and say, okay, Lord, I know my life can be dull and boring, but yours isn't. Show me what you're doing because I want to join in. An amazing quote that just stood out to me. I've got to get out of bed on purpose in the morning. 
There's divine appointments in the day. I wholeheartedly believe that and I wholeheartedly I, be, I miss most of them because I'm not walking step by step with the Father always. Are you guys challenged by that? I certainly am. That's the part of what we need to wake up to. God's doing stuff and we've got to say, God, I want to I step into what you're doing throughout my day. That's what Jesus did constantly. Interruptions constantly. He highlighted last week, you know, the woman with the issue of blood who interrupted Jesus as he was on his way to, 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 to see someone who was on death's door and he stopped for the interruption. How do we deal with the interruptions in our life, church? Are we awake to what God is doing? The other thing that we can be with Jesus, okay, we can spend time with the Spirit, we need to carve out time in our days to be with him. The other thing that we can do to be with Jesus is that we can read and see who he was. We have four gospel accounts and we've got the rest of the New Testament speaking about Jesus and his character and all, that, and all that aligns with that. We need to be in our Bibles, church. It's one of the amazing things of what Mark is going to lead us to. And when, when we hit September, we're going to be stepping into the New Testament. It's going to be great for us just to see how Jesus lived, to see how we interacted. Church, that's how we're supposed to interact with others around us. It's to be Jesus. It's to be the faith, the the hands and the feet of Jesus. We need to get in the Gospels. We need to have a relationship with Scripture that doesn't just come through other people. We need to be in it. We need to see what Jesus is saying. We need to see the person and the personality of who he is because we want to become like him. You can't become like him unless you're going through that process. The second thing we want to do in line with that is we want to become like Jesus. There's a guy uh, down in Portland. He said this about um, discipleship or becoming disciples. He said, the reality is that we're all disciples of some, somebody or something. We are all being formed into the image of something. Like it or not, that's happening. We all want to think we're unique, but in reality, we're a compilation of this, that, and the other influence. The question is not, are you a disciple? But what are you a disciple to? If you were to plot your character out one, two, three, four, five, six decades into the future, who are you becoming? Are you on track to become Jesus expressed through who he's made you and your personality? Or is it somebody on something else? And that's really challenging to us. We're all becoming disciples of somebody or something. And the question is how much time we spend in the presence of God. And guys, I believe we've got busy lives. We're really busy right now. And this is a big challenge to me. It's not to say, okay, I've got to send my kids off to boarding school so I can be more time with, with Jesus. But the challenge is, how can we be constantly in, in his presence to live this out? We want to become like Jesus. We are becoming like something. You know, uh, when I moved to Canada, when did I lose my phone? Anyway, anyway, I was so... Well, I think it was maybe on the, the first trip to Canada, I had an iPhone 3GS. I was like so stoked because they're, they're, they're pretty sweet at that point. Not everybody had them and I had one. And I was so smitten with Camilla that when I saw her in the ferry terminal, I left it and I lost it. <laughs> and I had to wait. I was like, I'm, I never buy an iPhone until like the day it comes out because it's like they're totally, you know, they're... If you, if you get one like a few weeks after, it just feels like it's old now. So I'm like, I've got to have it the day it comes out. So I didn't have a smartphone for like an entire year until the iPhone 4 came out. And it was a sweet, probably eight months. It was a sweet eight months of not having a phone. We are transformed by the thing in our pocket. 
We are transformed by the, the attention, our gaze. It's funny, during the prayer meeting, um, all iPhones, I don't know, Android phones do them now, but they send you a weekly report of how much you've looked at your phone. And they send it at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And if you listen carefully during the Oceanside pre-meeting prayer meeting, you can hear everyone's phone buzz. And it's a cool thing. I think maybe they do it at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning so we can feel really challenged by how much time we're spending with our phone versus Jesus. Look at the report. It's pretty worrying sometimes. Jesus says we can't serve two masters. Really challenging. Matthew 6, 24. We can't serve two masters. We're serving someone. We're becoming like somebody. The, the big word that the Mark will teach you and that you'll hear in like Bible school in different words is sanctification. God is, God is making us like his son, Jesus. In John 17, so staying in the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples in John, Jesus says this about sanctification in 1717. 17. It says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may truly be sanctified. See that sandwich that Jesus is making? It's a really delicious sandwich. It's a sanctification sandwich. It's sanctify them by your truth. We need to be in the truth, which is his word. We need to be connected with the spirit of truth, which is his spirit, word and spirit. And in that sanctification, he's sending us out into the world. Jesus is sending us out. Matthew 28, Jesus is sending us out. Go and make disciples. We need to be becoming like Jesus to be sent out properly. And I don't understand, but he says, for, I sanct- for them, I sanctify myself. I don't understand how Jesus can sanctify himself. But they too may be truly sanctified. Are we walking out? God is faithful and true. You know, if you're a Christian this morning, it's a supernatural relationship that you have with God. The process of sanctification, sometimes it's not something that we conjure up ourselves, that we squeeze really hard and today I'm going to become really sanctified. No, God is working through every situation in our life, teaching us lessons in different ways. Sanctification is a spiritual, spiritual process. But we're kidding ourselves if we can think that we, need, that we can be asleep for the whole thing to take part. It's a journey and we can get different, we can go down that journey either asleep or awake. And if we're awake, we're going to see the character and the life of Jesus come out and, of our lives in so many different ways if we're awake for it, hey? And the third thing is we need to do what Jesus did. I'm going to call Paul up in a moment just to speak about something this week. But the goal of the disciples was to do all that Jesus did. The goal of a carpenter, the goal of an apprentice is to do what that master is teaching you. We live next door and we actually live in the house that Camilla's granddad built. And he built these three houses and he's a carpenter. And how old is your granddad? He's like 78. He's coming on into his 80s. You cannot stop this guy from building stuff. He's... But he just built a fence last week, and I've got to be careful because sometimes he tells me he watches these. Hi, Oki. Um, <laughs> but you can't stop this guy from building, no matter how old he gets. And there's some health issues and different things, but you can't stop this man who apprentices to become a carpenter from being a carpenter. It's who he is. He's got to be building something with his hands. Otherwise, he just doesn't feel right. And church, the good thing for us, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about family. We operate in family. I hate to burst your bubble, but none of us are becoming the perfect Jesus Christ here this morning. In fact, we know and we constantly talk about this, that we're being fitted together like a body. 
In fact, as the church, we're an image, kind of like an image of Jesus to the world. And I need you guys, I need you guys in my life because you bring different giftings. Jesus had everything. He had all the giftings. He had all the spiritual giftings. But I don't and you don't. So we need one another. And together, we become a complete unit, that unit that Jesus is making us into. So we can't get too jacked up on ourselves. We can't get too proud. And as, when we become proud, Jesus takes us back down again and says, no, you need to serve one another. Jesus lacked nothing, but we do. We don't get all the spiritual gifts, but when we fit together, we do. So we ask, what did Jesus do? And in John 6, 38, earlier in John, he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, Paul just had a story. I just invite him up for a quick second about how that happened this week. Just short and sweet, but great. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the prophet Joel spoke and he said that he's going to pour out, that God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And it references that um, the sons and the daughters, that they will see visions and then the old man will dream dreams. I guess that means I'm an old man because I had a dream. Um, but I had a dream. I had the same dream twice a couple months back. And I dreamt that I was in an alley and there was a bunch of drug addicts in the alley really struggling. And I felt in my dream just the heaviness and the weight of what was happening in that space. And I remember waking up just like, man, what was that? And I kind of forgot about it. You know, sometimes you just have dreams and you don't think about uh, about them. And then a couple months later, I was meeting with uh, one of our connect group leaders and we were having a conversation uh, and he's a firefighter and he was sharing about an alley that is full of drug addicts in our city. And it's just this place that is all of a sudden populated with these people that are really struggling with homelessness and addiction. And I felt the Holy Spirit on me in the moment. I'm like, whoa, really? I'm like, I had a dream about that. I had forgot about it. Just kind of collecting dust on a shelf. I'd forgot about it. And um, just really felt the Holy Spirit as we were sharing. I went, wow, okay, well, okay, I'm awake. And what are you saying, right? Just if I think back to Bruce's word, um, you know, are we awake? And what is God saying? And with that, we went back to our connect group and we've been very outward focused as Andy's reminding us again that actually God wants us to get out. And just chatting with our group, one of the things that was on the heart of people in our group was actually to go out uh, and talk to people struggling with homelessness and addiction. And I started driving around the city trying to find this alley and I found the alley and I couldn't believe it. I, I drove into the alley and I went, whoa, this is exactly what I saw in my dream. And anyway, I, we, we decided with our connect group, you know, well, where are we going to do this outreach? And the answer was simple. We're going to the alley. So we took our connect group down on an evening instead of meeting in our home. And we set up a table. We got some coffee. We got some donuts. And we just went down to that place to love on people and talk to them about Jesus. We must have talked to about 40 people, could not believe the number that came through that space. And one person responded to the gospel. But it, it's... I share it just because in the context of what we're talking about, are we listening to the Holy Spirit? I felt kind of foolish that it took me two months to realize that God was actually telling me something. That it actually took two months for me just kind of leaving it on a shelf and then there was a reminder of, well, what are you saying, God? And then what are we doing with it? But just to, as, a, as an encouragement that, that God is speaking, that the more we follow through with the stuff Andy's referencing God wants to work in us and through us. And I'm nobody special. This has nothing to do with me. This is just, I'm like any one of you, but are we listening? What is he saying? Are we awake? Sweet. Thanks, Paul. Um, that's great. Yeah. Give him a round of applause. Well, 
This week, we want to see more of that. And we're hoping or praying as an eldership team and as an extended leadership team that God would send us out more and more. Following Jesus can't be a hobby. It can't be something that we just do in a certain section of our life and then we live out somewhere else because the call to discipleship is way more than that. Um, A part of that, uh, there's a guy called Dallas Willard. Um, He had this quote and he said, the greatest issue facing the world today so think about all the issues facing the world today. There's lots of different ones. There's different ones that come to mind for us as we, as we think about that question. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus, Jesus Christ and steadily learning from him to know how to live, uh, sorry, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens and put it into every corner of human existence. That really aligns us. Like the greatest threat to humanity is Christians not becoming disciples. Such a good point because it's only in that discipleship that we can step out and do something. The focal point of our lives, just as we finish up here, needs to be Jesus. And I can't prescribe how that's going to happen in each of your lives, but we can actually ask the Father, we can get into God's presence and say, hey, help me do this thing. In Matthew 14, it says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The gate is Jesus. We can only enter through Jesus. That's why it's a narrow gate. Even though it's open to everybody, it's a real fine gate because it's the person of Jesus Christ. But guess what? There's someone who leads us down the road like first century Christians followed their rabbis. We need to be following Jesus down the path because it's a narrow path. And sometimes we get astray. Sometimes we go different ways. Jesus, when you look at how he called his disciples or when when he got further on into his ministries, there were big, big requests that were asked of people who wanted to follow him. In Matthew 16, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus' invitation to the first century people that were around him was constantly, will you be my disciple, not will you become a Christian? In fact, Christian is only used three times in the Bible. The first time the Christian label was applied to Christians, we find in Acts 11 in, in, in a city called Antioch, and it was probably actually the people around the Christians because a lot of people were becoming disciples. It was probably actually a label that was applied in a derogatory way to this group of people. Who are those people that meeting Oceanside Church? Oh, let's call them Christians. Christian was a label that was applied to us. It was never the label that we were supposed to live by. And now we, you know, it's, we live by that and it, you know, there's no, nothing wrong with calling yourself a Christian. But we've got to live in more of what our identity as disciples or followers of Christ. Because disciple was used nearly 300 times. You know, most people's view of Christianity in the, in the, in the North American world or the European world, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to come to church a couple times a year or once every three weeks. Uh, You're a semi-moral person and you believe the basic idea that Jesus came, died and rose again. There's a, church, there's, a, there's a survey called Gallup in the States and they surveyed you know, everybody and they found that 77, 76% of people in North America in the US uh, define themselves as Christians. We probably know that that stat's lower for Canada and lower for North America because there's different dynamics there. But then there's different groups that came in and said, okay, of those 76% of people who are actually following the ways of Jesus, and that's 
there's so many different ways to describe that. There's so many different ways to find that. It's an impossible number to pinpoint. But there's a few different surveys out there that say actually the number is closer that 8% of people are trying to live like Jesus did, try to follow their rabbi, Jesus. And if you took that stat and you introduced that to the early church, the, the church in Acts, that would be a completely alien thing for the early church, a completely alien concept to say you can just call yourself a Christian but not follow his, in his way, in his footsteps, down the path that he has for us. And it all sounds really hard. Get to this point of the preach and feels really depressing because we can't live up to the standard sometimes of what, of what we're being called into. And there's a few things that give me great hope. And when, whenever we read scripture, we have to read it in tension of all the other scripture and everything else that Jesus has said around it. And the things that give me great hope are this. Jesus said, he said in John 10, 10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. The way of following Jesus is actually an abundant life. If it feels like a burden, we need to go back to step one and spend time with Jesus again. Only out of abiding in him can we bear the fruit of discipleship and what it's calling us into. And church, and that's a, a season that comes round and round and round again in our lives where we feel like we're burnt out, we're maybe struggling, and we constantly, constantly, constantly need to go be with our rabbi, Jesus. The other thing that gives me hope is that Jesus is so gentle. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says this, to tension out the other scripture that we've said, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be a disciple. For I am gentle. I'm the gentle rabbi and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The path is narrow, the path is hard, but it's also full of rest and life and abundant life as we follow Jesus. And to hold those two things in tension is really confusing because we can see all the commands. Oh my goodness. Yesterday I was like, okay, Jesus is constantly talking about people follow my commands. And I, I, I some, occasionally Google them. Some people will list like 300 commands that Jesus made. Some people put it at like 48, 49 or 50 commands. And you can get into this, oh my goodness, look at all the commands of Jesus. And there's different times where he sum, summarized his commands in, in gentler ways and different things like that. But it can feel like this massive burden, but actually his burden is light. And if we do this correctly, we should be restful. We should be anxious. We should not be anxious. You know, how many of us feel anxious? We feel anxious. I feel anxious all the time. If I'm following Jesus properly, that shouldn't be a part of my life. The other thing, you know, this isn't a burden. Discipleship is not a burden. It's the thing that gives us life. The other thing found in John 10 is how Jesus thinks about his people. It says in John 10, 27 and 29, and we're just wrapping up here, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. In fact, Dean and the band, you guys can come up and we just finish with the song here. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish for no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Church, we need to get out of the idea. This message wasn't preached a lot when I was a kid because the church I came out of was a church, was, it was like founded in the 70s, and the, the church in England in the 60s and 70s, it was a church where you really had to work to be a Christian. 
So the emphasis on, of, of what the message is that I heard growing up is grace, 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 grace. And we need to f- live a full grace message in our lives. But we also need to know that we're called to something. But the great thing about Jesus is he calls us what? He calls us sheep. Sheep are idiots, right? Talk to my wife. If you want to... F- if you want to know about an idiotic man following Christ, talk to my wife. She knows a lot about it. In fact, maybe don't talk to her. If she's in a good mood, talk to her. She'll be nice. But Jesus knows who we are. He knows that we're all sheep following him. And he looks after us. And we can't be snatched out of our hands. This morning, we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about what it requires to be saved. We're talking about what it requires to follow him. No one can snatch them out of his hand. The other thing is we look. We said earlier that these were all disciples, were PhD candidates. It was the apex of Jewish education system. But how did Jesus pick his disciples? Did he pick the ones who had learned the whole Old Testament? No, he picked a varying amount of people. He picked fishermen who would have left school, who would have flunked out of school at 12 years old and not learned a thing more. Maybe, you know... We look at the disciples, they were very ordinary people. Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, you're a very ordinary person. (laughs) Look in the mirror when you get home and think how ordinary you look. And then take heart because you know that Jesus is looking for just just that person, right? It says in Acts 4.13 about these ordinary people, about us. We're an ordinary group of people. It says, and uh, some of the disciples were standing before a court, and it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. But they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There is a boldness that comes to us as ordinary, regular believers that happens because we've been with Jesus. Are you feeling bold today to step out into the Great Commission? I can say no. Like, I'm bold here this morning preaching before you, but as soon as you send me out those doors, I talk to Camilla. <laughs> she's, she's the one who is more public in her faith. Have I spent time with Jesus? Can be very easily to be bold in our connections. We need the boldness that only comes from being in His presence. Uneducated men, unbelieving people recognize that these guys have been with Jesus. They, he, they must have been with Jesus because these people have a unique boldness on their lives. Again, to finish off with the Great Commission. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, has been given to Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. Disciples, baptizing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We don't do this by ourselves. It's by the power and the might and the authority of Jesus. And we need to be with Jesus. We need to become like Jesus through sanctification. And then we actually need to do all that he did. And it's not a one, two, three process. You know, you can go and make disciples day, t- day one of be- becoming a Christian and meeting Jesus. It's not something that you're waiting to be a PhD candidate for. It's open for all of us. Churches, we stand together and we sing together. Let's ask ourselves and reflect on, are we a disciple? And if we're not, like me, who's constantly struggled with this, being active in our faith, let's ask Jesus to empower us through the presence of His Holy Spirit that we might become like Him. Does that sound good? Amen. So let's stand together if that's okay with us.